This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's 2FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Jolan and Sami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorj, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we're delighted to be joined by the Honorable Morris McTeague, QSO, Vice President of Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and an Executive Advisory Board Member of the International Leaders Summit. Mr. McTeague has testified on Capitol Hill and published articles in many major media outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Bloomberg, Business Week, U.S. News and World Report, and the Chicago Tribune. Mr. McTeague advised the White House Office of Management and Budget and most federal agencies on the issues of accountability and transparency and has consulted with legislators and U.S. state governors in more than 30 states. A former cabinet minister and member of parliament in his native New Zealand, McTeague was one of the architects of the New Zealand miracle, which dramatically reformed the country's government and economy by implementing market-driven pro-growth policies. He later became New Zealand's ambassador to Canada and received the prestigious Queen's Service Order in recognition of his public service from Queen Elizabeth II. The Honorable McTeague has delivered keynote addresses at International Leaders Summit's events in the European Parliament in Brussels, cities across Eastern Europe, Washington, D.C., and spoke at the inaugural Jerusalem Leaders Summit in 2015 and the fourth Jerusalem Leaders Summit in 2018. And indeed, it is our great honor to welcome to America's Roundtable the Honorable Morris McTeague. Good morning and welcome, sir. Welcome, Mr. McTeague. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you once again. And I find discussions with uh, you and the Leaders' Summit and the Roundtable stimulating. Thank you, sir. In a recent exchange in Virginia's gubernatorial debate, a Democratic candidate and former governor, Terry McAuliffe, said he does not believe parents should tell schools what to teach during a discussion about sexually explicit materials in schools. Mr. McAuliffe said, and I quote, I am not going to tell parents, come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decision. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Unquote. In response, Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate, businessman and political newcomer, said, and I quote, You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of the kids' education. Unquote. On a broader discussion, there has been a greater concern about the future of American education and how a future generation competes in the global economy. The Program for International Student Assessment tests 15-year-old students around the world and it is administered by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. In 2018, when the test was last administered, the U.S. placed 11th out of 79 countries in science. It did worse in math ranking 30th. So U.S. ranks near the bottom in a survey of students' math skills in 30 industrialized countries. In a published report 
an economist from the Hoover Institution of Stanford University, Eric Hanushek, estimated that the U.S. economy would grow 4.5% in the next 20 years if our students' math and science skills were as strong as the rest of the world's. Mr. McTee, you brought to attention the unique example of New Zealand and how parents are the ones who have been actively engaged in the children's education. Could you kindly share with the listening audience about this unique educational system which was introduced in New Zealand in 1985 by Labour government, which would be a government left of centre? Well, let me start by just addressing Terry McAuliffe. And it's not difficult to address him because he's just flat out wrong. God gave the responsibility to parents to look after children. He didn't give it to school teachers and he certainly didn't give it to governors. Uh, So I think that he needs to rethink uh, his whole worldview. Let me just go back to the experience of my country in 1985. And we were looking at the issues of education and how well our children were doing compared to the rest of the world. And as we looked at those issues, and it wasn't the first time, of course, uh, the debate started to centre on the role of parents. And we came to a, a universally accepted conclusion that parents should be in charge of the education of their children. They should be able to make choices about how they're educated, where they're educated, and in what subjects. And then we decided that we needed to rebuild the New Zealand education system to allow that to happen. Giving the parents responsibility or recognising the parents' responsibility for the education of their children, we actually said that schools should be responsive to parents. We effectively made every school in the country a charter school on the same day. And there were some things about that that were very interesting. We did that because we wanted parents to be in charge. The schools were run by a board of trustees, uh, and the board of trustees was elected by the parents of the children at that school, and nobody else got a vote. The government gave to that board of trustees the money to run the school, and then they allowed the parents the right to be able to move their children to other schools if they thought the board of trustees was doing a bad job. Uh, we separated out the money for, for salaries from the money for um, maintenance and other expenditures. Uh, you couldn't use salary money for the general running of the school. It had to be used for salaries. But you could make choices about, did you employ more teachers, but maybe not as expensive ones? If you had a school that was uh, dominantly little children, five and six-year-olds, because children start school at five in New Zealand, uh, where you need um, more bodies present because they have very short attention spans. Or if you had a school where there were more children in the upper school, you might want less teachers, but more expensive and more experienced ones. We allowed those choices to be made by the principal and the board of trustees uh, because that was about meeting the needs at that local level. The thing that actually happened that was extraordinary was that the differential in educational attainment between schools almost immediately disappeared. By immediately I mean over the period of the next two years to two and a half years. 
In the past, the private schools, which were predominantly religious schools, uh, had a much better level of educational attainment. Under the new system, where those schools also, in the main, had become part of this whole group of charter schools, that difference disappeared. So what actually happened was that we saw some schools in some of the most socially and economically deprived areas of the country become some of the best schools in the country. What made the difference? An extraordinary principal choosing extraordinary teachers and then being able to do what they thought was appropriate for that group of people. Lots of people said to us that if you do this, what's going to happen is that a whole lot of schools are going to close in socio-economically deprived areas because they're not going to be able to manage. They were totally wrong. We didn't have a big exodus of of students. In fact, hardly any students moved from school to school because schools soon realized that if they didn't do as good a job as the school next to them, they were going to lose students. Something else that was really interesting to me was that a lot of the experts said parents won't be able to tell whether their children are getting a good education or not. And we needed to have some kind of um, structure that would enable them to be able to tell. We started building something that was called the Education Review Board. Before we got it built, we realised that it wasn't necessary. Because spontaneous order came about when people went to the grocery store, when they went to their church, when they went to their social functions, when they went to the pub, talked to each other and talked about what was happening with their children. And very quickly, people became aware of the fact that my child's not doing as well as so-and-so's. Or that, that child is a long way ahead of mine. And I go home and I pick up the telephone and I call somebody on the board of trustees because I know them all. And they actually take my call, which is something that education board's members don't do very often, and you have immediate accountability. At the same time, all of the education boards were disestablished. They were just wiped out because you didn't need them any longer. You had all of these schools that were making the decisions for themselves and they could use whatever teaching method they preferred, but the risk to them, if they do it badly, they're going to lose children. If they lose children, they're going to lose teachers. If they start losing teachers, teachers are going to get pretty unhappy and start saying, hey, we need to do a lot better. Uh, It's just the normal dynamics of society working, except In those places where we have totally structured these things, we take those dynamics away. And then you've got somebody who thinks they're a czar, makes those decisions for us, and normally makes those decisions badly. So, change is possible. Terry McAuliffe is wrong. I think the candidate, Youngkin, is right. We should give the authority back to parents to make decisions about how their children are educated. Mr. McTeague, from our conversations with America's Roundtable guests, including Virginia Waldenford, former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos, Governor Phil Bryant, and others, we got an impression, and it appears, that teacher unions in the U.S. present a major obstacle to greater involvement by parents in the public education. Mr. McTeague, how did New Zealand deal with teachers' unions? At one time, I used to be the Minister of Labour and the Minister of Employment in New Zealand, so I worked a lot with unions. I don't mind unions, they're fine. They're the advocates for working people, 
but you don't give to them extraordinary powers that aren't part of their job. So their job isn't to run schools. Their job is to manage the, the pay and the benefits of teachers. And look, there are a lot more parents than there are union members. And very quickly, if parents like this, the teachers will be saying to each other, hey, we do not want to alienate the parents. We've got to get on board with this. We've got to make it work. So the, the influence of the union dies down uh, to doing what it should do. Um, I'm not saying wipe the union out. I think that's wrong. Uh, but I'm saying push it back to where it should be. Uh, and if you don't do that, you're not doing your job. In fact, uh, Mr. McTeague, in regard to education reform in America, what would you suggest as the basic steps to look at what New Zealand has done and to replicate that in light of the challenges that America faces with a very strong teachers' union, as shared by our earlier guests, and uh, some of the hurdles that you have probably seen within the United States and at the state level. What would you suggest as real steps or recommendations as to how to implement what New Zealand did so successfully in 1985? When you're going to make big changes, you, you have to go big. Don't try and do little bits uh, in an incremental kind of way. Never ever gets finished. The go big part of it really says focus on empowering parents to make decisions about education and then do the things that will allow them to do that and then take away the things that are getting in the road. Uh, and if you do those things, then most of that will settle down itself. The unions will be back to doing the job that they're meant to do, and the bureaucrats will be away home fishing or something like that, and you will have interested parties uh, who will be making those decisions for the people they represent, children, their own children. And as they do that, then I think we, what we see is that there's going to be competition between schools to teach different subjects. Some of them will specialise in one or another, and parents will make choices around that. Some of them will specialise in things that are for particular children, either the extraordinarily advantaged or those with disabilities. Uh, but generally, if we look at how our society works, it works best when it's free to make choices. Indeed. And that's exactly what I would say with education. The fact that it's not free to make choices is one of the reasons why it's failing its consumers. And I see in education that the consumers are the parents on behalf of the children. It's very well stated. Mr. McTeague, last month marked the 15th anniversary of the Federal Funding Accountability and Transparency Act of 2006, which was passed unanimously in the Senate on September 7, 2006, and by the House on September 13, 2006. The bill was then signed into law by President George W. Bush on September 26. The legislation required that federal contract grant, loan, and other financial assistance awards be displayed on a publicly accessible and searchable website to give the American public access to information on how their tax dollars were being spent. And actually, you can visit usaspending.gov. 
Mr. McTeague, your principal leadership efforts contributed to this notable and historic endeavor in America, which allows decent, hardworking Americans and legal residents, as well as journalists and transparency activists, an opportunity to carefully review how tax dollars are being used by the federal government. And indeed, today, with so much taxpayer money being doled out due to the impact of COVID-19 and the push from politicians to spend more taxpayer dollars for an infrastructure bill amounting to $1.2 trillion, and this new so-called social spending bill being advanced on the Hill at this very time by Democrats and President Biden amounting to some $3.5 trillion, indeed, there is greater need for fiscal discipline, oversight, accountability, and transparency. Mr. McTeague, how would you rate the success of the Federal Funding Accountability and Transparency Act that was signed into law in 2006? I think it was a good policy, and I think it was a good idea. I think its results have been disappointing, but it's not because there was anything wrong with that policy. What's wrong is that the process that develops and passes the budget is broken. The fact that America hardly ever passes a budget is a disgrace to every member of Congress. Uh, And frankly, they should all be fired uh, and start all over again. We are entitled to have a budget every single year because the budget sets out what it is that the government intends to do with the money that they just took from us. I think we're entitled to know that. We're entitled to know it before they spend it, not afterwards. So the act that you just referred to is really looking backwards at what was spent. I'd rather look forward at what they're going to do in the future and get some idea of what's going to happen as a result. So until such time as the budget process is fixed and we have a budget every year, then I don't see this getting any better. The charade that we've just been through that looks at raising the debt limit is just that. It's a charade. Because some months previously, they made all of the decisions to spend. And now they're going to go back and say, oh, we spent too much. Um, Which bit are we going to cut out? I can't recall them ever cutting any of it out. That's right. The debt decision should go hand in glove with the spending decisions. And the people making those decisions should be held accountable in every committee. At the end of their deliberations, they should have to say, and we agree to raise the debt limit by X. They don't want to do that because that would be politically unpopular. I want them to do that because I want them to be politically unpopular. Uh, because that's how we have accountability. And that process is broken. In addition to that, the fact that we don't have a budget, except on extraordinary occasions. I think there have been six budgets in the last 17 years. A continuing resolution is not really a budget. It just says, oh, we'll spend the same as we did last year. One of the ways of dealing with that would be to look at what happens with governments in other countries. And the best example is really the OECD kind of countries, but especially those that come out of the Westminster system of parliamentary government. And what happens with parliamentary governments is that if you don't pass the budget, you have an immediate new election. That means that that consequence is never used. In the United States, if you don't pass the budget, everybody goes back to their rooms and has another whiskey and soda, and nothing bad happens. 
there needs to be a consequence. So you can't have a new election because of the Constitution. That's okay. But you could say that that's a failure of leadership in both the Senate and in the House. And what you could do was say that it's mandatory that the leader of the majority and the leader of the minority in the Senate must resign if they don't pass a budget. And the Speaker and the leader of the minority in the House must resign if they don't pass a budget. That's mandatory. I guarantee there would be a budget every year. That's right. I'm not saying we would like it, but at least there would be a process. And if there's a process, we've got a chance of influencing it. Because unfortunately what's happened in the United States is that over time, more and more inappropriate pressure is placed upon members of Congress to vote for an entire package. And by doing that, they disguise exactly what it was that they voted for. I want them to have to vote individually on each item so I can say to them, that was really dumb, I hate that idea, and I hold you responsible for it. Uh, Or maybe they would vote against it if they had to do that where it was transparent for us all to see. Because transparency is at the heart of accountability. If we can see what's going on, then those making the decisions will change their behaviour accordingly uh, to be thought better of. Not rocket science. We could get it done next week. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Mr. McDeague, who do you think should initiate these changes? Since lawmakers, it is not always in their own interest to vote on each bill separately, whereby each bill has only one subject, and it is not in lawmakers' interest to impose such measures as forced resignation. So, okay, let me try and answer that. First and foremost, I think we have to do a better job of describing how useless members of Congress actually are. They're not making any individual decisions. Uh, They're doing exactly what their leadership tells them. They are voting fodder and nothing better than voting fodder for a small clique of people in each of the political parties who makes all of the decisions. Their presence in Washington is totally unnecessary because they don't do anything useful while they're here. We need to tell them that much more frequently, because then they might actually get some courage and start saying to their leadership, whoa, I'm not doing that. I'm not being bought off like that. Because I think that that buying off is corrupt. Make those changes, then I think there's a chance for things to change. Leaders are people who take hard decisions. The best leaders that we can find in history were people who weren't very popular. Because they did make hard decisions. They were out in front. They could see what needed to be done and they did it. Uh, And they didn't do it because they wanted to get accolades. They did it because they thought it was the right thing to do. Many of the leaders were difficult, irascible kind of people to deal with. But when chips were down, people like Churchill were the ones that you wanted to have there. And despite his difficult personality from time to time, he was the one that you could rely on when things got really, really bad. In a different manner, I think that Ronald Reagan was exactly the same. And how I would describe him was, he was good at setting aside the trivia. Right. And looking at the big issues and saying, this is what we really need to focus on. I was a much younger person, as everybody else listening was, um, when he gave this speech about the shining city on the hill. I was living in New Zealand and it was inspiring. 
because he actually had a vision of America that wasn't here at that time, but he wanted to create over time. And then he took the steps to start doing that. Uh, and I think that uh, he created the opportunity for a golden period in American development that lasted for about the next 30 years. We need another Ronald Reagan. I don't care whether he's a Democrat or Republican. I want somebody who has the courage to actually do the job of leading. Indeed. This weekend on America's Roundtable, we were truly delighted to be joined by the Honorable Morris McTee, QSO, Vice President for Outreach at the Mercator Center at George Mason University and an Executive Advisory Board Member of the International Leaders Summit. Mr. McTee, we've truly appreciated your continued principal leadership in advancing uh, market principles, advancing freedom, the rule of law, and for such a time as this, it is so much needed in America and in other parts of the world. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Roundtable. Thank you, Mr. McTeague. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And uh, I congratulate you on the work that you're doing, that you're bringing this debate to the public. It needs to be talked about more often. Thank you so much. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting's two FM radio stations in Michigan and the Midwest and Supertalk Mississippi Media's 12 radio stations in the South. We thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joel Adensami, your co-host, joined by Natasha Sardorch, economist and co-founder of the International Leaders Summit, and our distinguished guest host, Governor Phil Bryant. America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. brings together leading voices from business, government, media, technology, and the public policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, and Fireside. Visit iLeadersSummit.org. iLeadersSummit.org.